We have seen the attacks at home, from Boston to San Bernardino to the Pentagon, and yes, even the World Trade Center. We have seen the attacks in France, in Belgium, in Germany, and all over the world. It is not compassionate, but reckless, to allow uncontrolled entry from places where proper vetting cannot occur. Welcome to Politics, where a curious Kiwi mind meets a furious American political journalist. I am the curious Kiwi Tim Bat. I'm Jeb Lund, the occasional political journalist. You say occasional. Is that just more of um, like you questioning your vocation or is it employment status changing with the winds? Oh, just, uh, I, I, you know, I don't have a full-time gig with anybody at this point. And, you know, everyone is kind of, you know, everybody wants to report on what I report on now. So a lot of times what happens is I'll have an idea and I'll pitch it and they'll say, uh, grats, you know, we've got, we've got these three people on staff who really want to do that. So it's a lot of times like I, I have, I have an idea. Um, and I just, I call the, the few places I have, I have good relations with. I have many good relations with many places, but just the best to, you know, places, the, the best relations, tremendous. I, I don't I, yeah, like. I don't want to go into like the whole like this is how uh, freelance journalism works. But you you have multiple factors that you're always dealing with. One is, you know, is it a place that is likely to have already covered or assigned what you're pitching? Two, are they likely to want to print it? And three, how much money are they going to give you? And so if you have an idea that can hold for a couple of days, you send it to the places with the most money first and then let them reject you and then you kind of have your safety school kind of thing mm. you're like oh they'll take me and uh so you know you you, you hunt for the cash and then you you kind of hunt for the opportunities and and that isn't going to really work the latter one doesn't work if if everybody already wants to cover the only thing you can think of something about well uh, and you don't have an editor who who calls you up every day and says like hey we need this so you're really just kind of guessing Jeb, so for your sake, I, I pray that we return to a day where there's more media gatekeepers and uh, less BuzzFeed-style feeding machines of getting new journalist talent in. Because by gum, I want to look out of you after there. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking a lot of selfies. I'm hoping that you know, eventually I'm going to hit on the one that restores your faith in humanity. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sending them in, but so far it's not really sticking for me. Um, now, was, apologies... This this yep. podcast is coming out a little bit late and janky, and my voice probably sounds quite terrible because I'm using a microphone that is a little bit broken, but it's way less broken than the one I normally use, which I've somehow broken over the weekend uh, doing a podcast festival. Uh, also, Japan was another thing, and then I got uh, gastro, which was fantastic. So I'm at the other end of all of those things, and I turn on the TV and the news, and it turns out Trump's still there. It wasn't just a fever dream, unfortunately, Jeb. It persists. <laughs> and um, what I wanted to talk to you first about today, uh, the big thing, which wait, wait, I still wait, haven't... Wait, wait. Oh, hey, yeah. I got I to hit you with something you may not have seen. There was this article in Slate today from a uh, an emergency room doctor because they always want to orient... You know, they want to determine if you have your, your faculties. So they ask you, you know, what year it is, if you know where you are and who the president is. And so this guy has been asking people for a couple, like a month now, people who've had cranial trauma uh, you know, do you know who the president is? And, and it just, he, it's, it's not as, as funny as you would think, but it, you know, just describing like the, the expressions that come over people's faces <laughs> when they realize that it's real. <laughs> oh boy. It's, it's not cool. It's like waking up and being in back to the future. It's just like, what the fuck? Um, the big thing that's happened of the last week, that's concrete and not from a leak. Uh, the big public thing would be, Trump's joint address to Congress, 
which uh, you were just explaining to me is like a state of the union address, but you have to wait till you've been in office for a year and certain things have to have happened. I haven't seen the entire speech yet. Um, I want to sit down and absorb it all. I was a bit busy when it first came out and I've just seen clips ever since, but give me the lowdown. What's Jeb's take on uh, this first kind of uh, very traditional formal presidential act by Donald J. Trump? Well, it was a you know a whole lot of nothing really. I mean that's so the the Trump administration admitted the next day that they worked the refs by by saying well Trump is going to have a, a you know sort of a gang of gang of eight kind of uh, immigration recommendation. He's going to walk past walk back this hardliner stance, and so they bought themselves a day of excited and favorable coverage leading up to the speech that Trump is going to drop this this bombshell and and he's pivoting again and. It's like Lucy with the football and peanuts. I mean, it, all the administration has to do is say like, well, you know, we're, we're, we're changing personnel. We're going to change our focus here. We might pivot. And then the whole news media runs to kick the football and then Lucy yanks it out of the way and everybody goes, whoa, and, and they're fucked. And they did that again. And then you got the Trump speech, which was, I mean, the most memorable thing was just him praying vulture-like on this war widow. That's really the, you know, the signature moment. Everything that you, you find out was already in the works. The, uh, the voice program where you're supposed to call and report on the existence of immigrants. Sorry, were, who's the know, war widow of which you refer? Uh, so uh, uh, a Navy SEAL was killed in the... Oh, raid. the Yemen attack. Yeah. Yeah. So Trump, Trump and uh, Bannon uh, and I think maybe Kushner was there. Go ahead and authorize this attack on Yemen. Uh, mm. that, you know, you know, over, over dinner, mm. uh, without like a bunch of generals around to go just a minute. And, uh, so a Navy SEAL was killed along with about a dozen women and children. Um, one American girl, and then a, a bunch of people that this administration clearly doesn't give a shit about. Uh, they immediately tried to blame it on the Obama administration saying, well, it was their plan that we executed. It, it wasn't, I mean, there, there was an Obama administration plan that had never been acted upon. So we've, we've been involved in Yemen with Saudi Arabia for, you know, well over a year, uh, yeah. longer if you want to go, you know, and, and this had never been acted on the, the, in fact, the one provision that the Obama administration had was this needs to be done on a moonless night. They didn't do that. Uh, at the beginning of the day that he gave the joint address, Trump just threw all the generals under the bus. They said, you know, yeah. he said something like they killed him. Well, that was <laughs> like, the crazy thing to me because I think that that quote where he said they lost him was from a Fox and Friends interview. And the thing that I kind of didn't see anyone reference was the fact that the Trump administration have so run out of credible media that they're allowed to talk to now um, and get away with it that they went on fucking Fox and Friends, which is essentially like an infomercial for the right wing. And they still managed to get a contentious interview out of that and, and headlines out of an interview with Fox and Friends. And it blows my mind. And it's kind of... Um, reaffirming about the credibility of the press in America that no matter what political spectrum they're on they still do find a way to get the president in trouble even in seemingly the safest of environments well who was the uh, I can't remember who the interviewer was was it Chris Wallace I know uh, it was the three a... the three yuppies and I can't remember their names but oh, oh the yeah. Fox and Friends folks the uh, yeah yeah uh, like Kilmeade and Ducey <laughs> sure that oh, sounds like, right. how do you how do you fuck that up? Like, I mean, it's like, these are people like Steve Ducey is lucky if he can fog a mirror. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah. 
No, you're right. I mean, and, and that's the thing. Whenever people are like, well, don't pay attention to when Trump does this. It's misdirection. Like, these fuckers can't do anything right. Yeah, This really idea can't. that they're, they're always 14 moves ahead of absolutely everybody is, is ludicrous. I mean, you know, there's certain things that they want to do, and they broadcast that, and then they fuck up along the way, and they get distracted. But, you know, they, they want to ban Muslims. They want to ban brown people. They want to empower the police to be more aggressive with non-whites. They want people, everyone to apologize to the police. They want to cut taxes, and they want to de- de- deregulate the fuck out of everything. And if shit gets in the way when, because they stumble over themselves, like there's no reason to go, oh, you know, this fuck up is a signal to do this or it's going to get the journalists to pounce. Like, you know, the, the cleverest thing they did was float the thing about immigration. And literally like any administration w- wants to say like, oh, there's going to be a surprise. There's going to be something good because they want you to tune in. But we, so yeah. if I've understood it correctly, the surprise was that he's softening his position on immigration. He didn't. I mean, it, that was just a complete, right. you know, it was a complete fake. Um, and instead, he rolls out the voice program, which, again, he, he, they'd already, uh, we, we'd already had a round of reporting on the fact that they were planning that kind of um, sort of like hotline slash registry thing. You know, Is that a, like if you with, see something, say something hotline? Yeah, or if you, basically if you see someone and the only identifying features need to be that they're not white, basically. Oh, boy. Oh boy, this doesn't sound good. There is a big question about the incompetence versus maliciousness um, of the Trump administration because while it seems super apparent that the dude at the top, um, the president himself, is not a good executive, like he's not a good manager, he's not a good dude at process or clearly hiring or even vetting people to be part of his inner circle, he is surrounded by people who seem to be somewhat effective in very evil ways. And I'm thinking like your Millers and your Bannons. Um, And there's a really good podcast that I recommend everyone check out um, from the journalists who make the website, uh, The Intercept. And the podcast is called Intercepted, which is hosted by Jeremy Scarhill. And um, they were talking about kind of the fusion of those two things this week, the kind of... um, the stupidity and the malevolence combining to make a real evil shitstorm of a situation, particularly for Mexican people who are there, undocumented um, workers and immigrants who are in America at the moment. And this this kind of, uh, the shifting sands that are forming a policy direction now about the, the changing power of, of the um, ICE workers and the Border Patrol who were already a pretty out of control bunch of um, people to begin with and they've kind of been given this renewed sense of self-importance and self-direction from the Trump administration and it's it's creating a like quite an evil situation and they were even extrapolating it to the um, to the point of like bringing in the the Jeff Sessions has directed the Justice Department to go back against an Obama directive which is that under the federal system they should get away from privatized prisons and that they've now kind of undone that. So they're going to go back towards using privatized prisons in the federal system. And the whole thing, I mean, I don't want to use language that's too apocalyptic, but it's sounding ever so slightly Holocaust flavored. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, there were a lot of things that Obama and the Obama administration couldn't talk about. And I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2009, there was a big 
you know, the DOJ release on, on, well, here's where domestic terrorism is coming from in the U.S. And, you know, the, the answer, and anybody who is paying attention can tell you, is overwhelmingly white people and overwhelmingly white yeah. conservative people. And, of course, you know, the, the Republicans in Congress went absolutely apeshit with, like, oh, he's demonizing us, he's calling us criminals. And they just basically shut that down. And, you know, then the Trump administration says, we're, we're, when we do domestic terror and, you know, counterintelligence, we're going to prioritize the, these things. And everything they want to prioritize is Muslims, 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 immigrants in general, deprioritizing white people. You know, the Obama administration couldn't do that. The other thing they couldn't talk about, and, and they got as close as they could with um, Holder and Lynch in the attorney general's office, was there is there is a lot of racial antipathy in law enforcement. And uh, The Intercept, in fact, did a, a piece on this, I want to say maybe only three weeks ago, where they said that, you know, the FBI is reluctant to share uh, information with some local law enforcement, uh, uh, you know, sheriff's offices, police departments, et cetera, because they believe they've been too significantly infiltrated by white supremacists and not to get into that whole, like all cops are bad. You know, I've known some good cops. I think everybody does. Uh, you know, I've, I've also known a bunch of people who got, you know, straight C minuses in my high school who went right to the, uh, the County Sheriff's office because they needed a career where they could put the skills they learned in, in uh, high school, uh, to good use. And those were bullying. Mm. And so they become the, you know, the institutional power arm of, of, you know, uh, repression and, and racism and, and they become somebody by being the hammer for, uh, you know, whatever the, the local county commission and, and swells are. And, you know, there, there are a lot of these people out there and, and this is where that whole, like, Oh, you know, we're under attack with all lives matter. Black lives matter comes from they, you know, there, there are people in these offices that have absolutely no sympathy for anyone who is not a white American. And I'm very, it makes me very anxious that the Trump administration wants to have more of these people and have them have, you know, more powers to operate within the mainland and away from the border. I think they're allowed to go up to 90 miles, um, you know, and, and clearly we have an attorney general who has no interest in, in reining in any of the racial excess of these people. So, yeah, I mean, like, is, is Holocaust might yet still be, a you know, a, a stretch, but, um, you know, there is there is a heady flavor of white supremacy white supremacy to all this i just don't like where it ends you know like where it gets to but um let's take a brief break now you just mentioned uh, jeff sessions and that's who we want to talk about next and the sort of latest chapter in this ever going saga with russia so we'll be back in just a moment to talk about uh the incredible <laughs> jeff sessions and his bumbling russia situation after this retrospect if i should have slowed down and said but i did meet one russian official a couple of times that would be the ambassador thank you all take care and welcome back to politics uh i want to talk about jeff sessions who is the recently appointed attorney general which means that and correct me if i'm wrong jeb he's in charge of the justice department and he also oversees the fbi is that right yeah he's the highest ranking law enforcement official in the land Okay, so it seems a little bit concerning then that he um, appears to maybe have perjured himself semi-recently in the lead-up to uh, Trump's election. He was part of the campaign, um, and uh, he was questioned by... uh, Who was the senator? Al Franken. Franken. 
um, about whether or not he had contact with um, the Russians, basically, that there had been some news reports from CNN which was surfacing basically as Al Franken was talking to him. And he just put the question to him basically in real time. He said, look, these reports are coming out. I don't expect you to have read the news reports yet, but can you confirm whether or not the uh, Trump campaign has been communicating with the Russians? And Jeff Sessions uh, said to him under oath, I can tell you that I have been described as a surrogate of this uh, campaign once or twice, and I have not had uh, contact with the Russians. And it has come out in the last few days that, in fact, Jeff Sessions had at least two contacts with, um, I believe it was the Russian ambassador, is that right, Jeb, during that time? Yeah, the, um, oh, what's his name? <laughs> like, uh, I, I, his name always Sergi? pops in my head. It's like, like Basilisk or something, but, uh, and then Kavinsky, and I don't think, I don't think he was playing that Night Call song from uh, Drive at <laughs> Jeff Sessions, but, yeah, Kisiliak, there we go. So, what the defense has been from uh, Jeff Sessions' office that I've seen is that he was speaking to the Russians within the context of the committees that he's on and other positions that he had. But I think it's pretty important to point out that he was asked a really straight-up question from Al Franklin, and he gave uh, uh, from Al Franken, and he gave a really straight-up response back to him without any caveats, and it did not include. I speak to a lot of foreign diplomats as part of my other positions. I talk to the Russians on a regular basis about a number of issues. He didn't say any of that. He just said, I have not had contact with the Russians. So there has been um, calls as dramatic as from the ACLU for uh, Jeff Sessions, basically uh, impeachment proceedings to come against him. What's complicated this never-ending shitstorm as well is the fact that he refuses to recuse himself from the calls uh, to have an investigation, an independent investigation using a special prosecutor um, to get it away from Jeff Sessions uh, because no one's seemingly able to get an objective intelligence review of what these connections between the Trump administration and the Russians are. Is that basically a, a rough summary of where we're at at the moment, Jeb? Funnily enough, um, so when when you, you rang... Uh, I just finished watching uh, Sessions Presser. He did recuse himself in, in future investigations. He, uh, what was interesting, so there, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that, that's fun about that Franken-Sessions uh, moment. Because Franken asked him, you know, did you have any of these contacts? And he said, I was not aware of any of these. I didn't do that. And it's it's a good weasel answer. No, sorry. He didn't say like, I'm not aware of other people. He said, I didn't do it. And mm. It was a great weasel answer if you know that other people did. Right. Yeah. If you don't think they're asking about you, so you just kind of go like, "Well, I didn't do it." Yes. And 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 like, so the natural follow up is, "Did somebody else?" But yeah. He doesn't have to answer that. But by doing that, I didn't do it. Then he puts himself in the the pot for this. And then so he says, uh, "Well, you know, I I had it was a common foreign relations committee thing to meet with these ambassadors." The Washington Post last night called twenty of the twenty six senators on the uh, foreign relations committee. And 20 of them that they could reach said, I've had no personal meetings with uh, Ambassador Kisiliak. Uh, the, the, the meeting that Sessions claimed he did not recall was a, an in-person meeting in his office uh, in September, right at the time when, when you know, uh, we had another spike of potential Russian involvement. So you would think that this meeting would have been germane to his thoughts about his relationship with Russia, maybe something he might remember. And then 
in addition to saying like, well, I, I really can't tell you what was discussed. Then when he gave this announcement recusing himself, he gave practically like a minute by minute TikTok of his relationship with uh, the, the Russian ambassador. So the thing he didn't remember, he had like a bulleted list of what didn't happen at the thing he didn't remember within 24 hours. Don't ask me why, but I really wanted to give Jeff Sessions the benefit of the doubt that the meetings he had had, when the news reports started coming out that he had had at least two meetings that the press had found out about um, with the Russian ambassador, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt that this was just a, a kind of media beat up about him meeting with foreign officials during the course of other positions that he's had. But it seems like from what you're saying now, from interviewing these other similar members of committees who have not had any similar meetings with the Russians, that this is an abnormal thing. It's pretty hard to swing this in Jeff Sessions' direction and pretend like this is a normal thing, nothing to see here. And and also, and this, this is what really gets me, is... At no point, I mean, again, we were talking earlier about the generalized incompetence of this administration. Sessions was an early, early adopter of the Donald Trump program. He was the first senator who hopped mm. onto it. And he was he was the lone guy for a long time. Uh, you know, he, he took that political risk. Uh, and, you know, his his thoughts on immigrants are really not at all different from Donald Trump's. So he was he was one of the uh, uh, supporters of. Uh, basically, one of the the Chris Kobach, who's the the Kansas Secretary of State, inspired laws of self deportation that was applied in Alabama, where basically they said, if you go outside and you have any contact with a law enforcement official, he's going to go papers please to you, and we're going to make it so inhospitable that you just go home. So he was on board with that, you know, th- th- as a true believer and and as one of the first like kind of uh, not premier, but, you know, definitely name people to get on the Trump train. I've, I feel like he probably had, you know, easy access to, uh, to Trump folks and was around. And if everything else we've learned from these people tells us anything, there's no way he didn't know that, like, Paul Manafort or somebody else was talking to, you know, these Russian officials. These guys have, like, zero message discipline on the stuff they want to tell you about. They're even worse on the shit they want to hide from you. And if they think yeah. that Jeff Sessions is 100% on board, I can't imagine they're not blabbing in front of him. So, like, fuck the benefit of the doubt. I mean, if anything else, like, <laughs> just fuck, you know, fuck that little Keebler Klansman. You know, I just, no sympathy for him. I, you know, I just hope he's, I hope he's hung by his thumbs. So what you're saying now is that he, uh, in this presser which has just come out, he has changed his position and said that he will recuse himself from these intelligence investigations into the connections between Trump and Russia. Yes, but that's going to, I mean, that can kickstart a whole process. Like, who winds up doing the investigating? Is it is it some aide that he has? Is it somebody who was yeah. appointed in the DOJ by him or that somebody they already know to be sympathetic? Is it a special prosecutor? If they go with a special prosecutor, well, who picks so that special prosecutor? Here's a question for like, you, Jeb. Do you think sure. it's possible that the reason why Jeff Sessions has recused himself is to try and get more influence over the process rather than less? So, for example, if the prevailing political wins and basically what the whole citizenry wanted was a special prosecutor to investigate this because Jeff Sessions was so intimately involved. Do you think there is now that he said he will recuse himself some sort of backdoor operations that can happen where they can exert a bit more um, unseen influence over who's going to investigate this? 
Oh, sure. But I, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that this was a plan all along. I mean, I, I think that in this case, they're making it up as they go, mm. uh, just as much as we're finding it out kind of as we go. Uh, I don't think there was any grand strategy here because it, unless we see that he he hands the reins off to somebody else and he's like, I'm going to build a Chinese wall between me and this uh, this assistant attorney general, deputy attorney general uh, that, you know, he he personally picked. Like, unless we see that, I think it's it's this is the simple thing they can do to shut a lot of people up because, hey, you got you know, you got your independent investigation. Yeah. Well, and then the the game that they can play is. Then the Democrats go back and they go, it's not independent enough. And then they can say, geez, nothing ever satisfies these people. This is a witch hunt. So they get hammered on that. And then maybe they, you know, finally Congress appoints a a special counsel and it's an independent. But then we can argue about how independent is he? And then they can say, look, these Democrats and these leftists are so unreasonable. They can keep playing this out for a really long time. Uh, and, And in fact, giving like only little bits and seeing how satisfied people are works for them. But I wonder how much it's going to damage them in two years when the country goes to vote again. Like, if you draw this kind of thing out, it seems like it's going to do more damage rather than less, unless the actual smoking gun is quite, quite, quite big. Yeah, and and kind of concomitant with that is in how many how many voter suppression laws can be passed in the next two years that are active for the 2018 election. And, you know, as much as is you might think like, okay, they're going to get stomped because they've overreached. Uh, You know, uh, you've got a couple of factors that work against that. One, um, there's the fact that just voters forget. You know, 2014, the the Republicans nearly kind of ran the table uh, in the congressional elections, even though that just within 18 months, they had effectively broken the government over a shutdown. Mm. And, And it was extraordinarily unpopular at the time, but by the time the election came around, people went, eh? Now, I mean, in fairness, like all the Democrats that were nominated were, you know, they had the name Democrat by them, but yeah. that's about it. Uh, there's that factor. But, you know, the the other uh, thing to remember is, you know, Republicans vote so much better in, in off-year elections than Democrats do. And unless this energy is still sustained by then, you can see, you could see the vote totals going back down to something like normal. People might, you know, it's like that old Onion article, um, uh, you know, like uh, area liberal has Bush outrage fatigue, and it's this—it's <laughs> talking about a guy who can't even finish reading Harper's anymore. You know, he's how just much, sort of sitting on his couch. How much um, hope or otherwise do you have that the energy will be able to be sustained by the left and these resist movements and these indivisible groups and like things that popped up, like the Women's March? How much faith do you have that that's going to be able to translate into meaningful change in two years when when people go back and vote? I have to be an optimist because I live here. I, you know, like I gotta, I gotta believe in something at this point. Try and use your brain uh, though, rather than your heart. You've seen a lot of these cycles. How do midterm elections usually go? Uh, well, I mean, they usually go Republican, but uh, so he, I, I, you've got a couple of factors that you you couldn't have predicted, um, or you couldn't have predicted would happen now. And one is uh, people finally waking up to the fact that Obamacare and the ACA are the same thing and it actually helps them. It's been around long (laughs) enough that now they know they don't want to lose it. Yeah. Uh, So you have swing voters potentially there. And then the other thing is like all these indivisible things in the Women's March, these aren't being coordinated by the Democratic Party. In fact, the Democratic Party, about the best it can do 
right now is send out mailers going, well, here are effective ways to protest. Here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do. But so much of this is grassroots generated that my, my ambition, my real hope is that this energy is bigger than the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party says, the train is going left, we're going to get on, we're going to hop on the caboose and then see how far it takes us because uh, we don't have any, there, there's no, nothing else we can do. Uh, and I think the fact that you have these groups that are willing to harness social media and, uh, and, and you know, their own initiative to say, this is what we're going to push for, that you're going to have a much better turnout in an off-year election than, than you did in, in 2014. I think if, if nothing else, too, you know, there, there is this lassitude that sort of sets in when your party is in charge. You, you saw that under Bush, where you had all these Tea Party people coming out angry about the spending. Now, surely, you know, Obama spending and the, the TARP bailout and all that, surely a ton of that is just plain old racism. But a lot of it, too, is probably, hey, we're in charge. You know, we're, uh, if I just wait what I want will happen. And then the moment you're not in charge, you go, shit, I have to do something for this. Like, you know, actual civic engagement and government isn't just voting and then hoping to God that the guy I voted for eventually gets around to doing what I really hope he'll do. It's voting for the guy and then showing up out his, outside his office and going, you know, bonjour, motherfucker, what's going on? And and like, this is what the, the left is now doing to the Democratic Party. I mean, if anything else, like, I, I you know, I'm glad that they're out harassing uh, Republican senators and representatives, but as soon as they're done with that, I want them to march across the county to the nearest Democratic represent- representative and going, don't think for a fucking second you're off the hook. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you're saying about the sort of current um, position of the Democratic Party compared to where the bulk of the left is at now in terms of like, there's a lot of the population out there which seems a lot more left of the Democratic Party now, like more obviously than ever before. And one of the signifiers, without wanting to over-dramatise its importance, was the um, election of the new DNC chair uh, to take over from Desi Wasm- Debbie Wasman schultz and then Donna mm-hmm. Brazil was the fill-in. And now Tom Perez, who was sort of seen as the establishment choice, um, has just been elected over Keith Allison, who he swiftly made his um, vice or co-chair or whatever the position is, um, I, I think, in an attempt to really placate and take the wind out of the sails of kind of the Obama, uh, sorry, of the Sanders-Warren uh, wing of the party. But uh, again, I don't want to put too much importance on that because I think that race might have been overread a little bit. Um, it is a largely administrative role. But it is kind of a signifier that the Democratic Party isn't doing a whole lot to get on board with this more, more left direction that the rest of the country seems to be taking. Well, yeah. And I mean, they, they ran out as their State of the Union or, or joint session response. They ran out, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an ex-Kentucky governor who just sort of looked like he was doing a Jimmy Dean pork sausage ad. Oh, man, I didn't uh, see that either. I saw Bernie's response. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, it was Bernie was Bernie. And, but yeah, the, it, it was just the most inert, feckless, completely. I mean, it was just so totally tone deaf. It was it, like it, it, my, the joke I had at the time was like, hey, what if we got all the 2016 demographic algorithms uh, to write the speech for us? You know, it was just <laughs> sort of like they just took this shit that they had left over from the campaign, plugged it into a fucking computer and then had somebody read what came out. And, you know, it it it. it so clearly ignored the ferment that has happened in the last 
40 days. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I hope that my, I mean, my, my dream idea with the Perez Ellison thing is that Perez was like, listen, I'm, I'm to the left of the people who, who wanted me to run. Cause like you, you kind of soft pedaled it. I mean, Ellison was running for it for months. Perez came in at the last second. Yeah, that's true. Pretty much at the behest of, uh, the money elite and the party and, uh, and ex Obamans. And, uh, you know, they, with, with the, the intention of having somebody there who wasn't going to piss off mega donors. Mm. Uh, but my dream idea is that he's just there to make mega donors feel happy while the democratic party picks their pocket. And then, like then hopefully has enough people to raise their taxes but uh is that realistic that's a pretty rose tinted vision of the future i gotta hope for that i mean like i'm gonna be disappointed but i gotta hope for it yeah i guess so um hey just while we were talking about jeff sessions in this session that we've drifted a bit from there now i wanted to just ask you about what the hell is going on with the direction of um federal laws with regard to marijuana and uh the state's abilities to self-police regulate um make their own policy around weed uh there's been some headlines i haven't dug into this issue what is happening at the moment jeb okay so under obama basically you still had all these federal statutes that say uh marijuana is criminal uh basically the the obama administration chose not to interdict uh, marijuana sales or distribution or in states that had legalized it, although they had that right. And occasionally they would kind of flex and do that a little, you know, their, their thing was, you know, basically if you're not money laundering, if you're not affiliated with any violent gangs, if you're not, if you, you yourself don't have any, uh, you know, sort of criminal background, if this is really just a, a, you know, an agricultural transaction that has been, uh, regulated somewhat by the state, we're going to keep our hands off. So a lot of what Sessions is doing is a, like a lot of what Bannon and the rest of, of the gang are doing. They're taking these these sorts of things that we took for granted as the rule when in fact it was just the norm. And they're saying, well, we're going to have a new normal. So the, the uh, Sessions spoke to a, a group of attorneys general and said that, uh, you know, he didn't want people on, you know, he didn't want a marijuana dispensary in every street corner he didn't want it to walk around and see people uh, on marijuana. That's horrible. I mean, because imagine if you could go to like any street corner and buy like a really stupefying drug <laughs> that, that made you do stupid shit like drive. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it was it was this signal where he's like, I've got these sets of beliefs. I mean, sure, they're not consonant with like literally any data, but I have them uh, and, and I'm going to act on that. And you had the Colorado attorney general who has overseen what has been a boon to the Colorado economy and, and obviously has gotten them quite a bit of tourism yeah, uh, and, and, and regulated this thing, you know, for, for people with money. I mean, you, you, this is something that a lot of Republicans can get in on because you can have an, you know, the capital class can swan in and take what could be this sort of potential startup economy for thousands and thousands of people and create the McDonald's of weed and, and uh, say, go fuck yourself to 90% of uh, the citizenry. Plus, it's, and, a, so it's a conservative issue. Let people do the thing that's not harming everyone else around them. Why should the state interject themselves into that transaction? So I've, never, point, I've never understood the arguments against against marijuana legalization. Um, well, you're gonna get you're gonna get a lot of mail explaining <laughs> this to you. I think. Uh, no, and also it's a you know it's a state's rights issue. So why should the federal government come in here and, and impose this? Blah blah blah. You know well, exactly. It, 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 the, the, 
you and I could go, we could lose our voices talking about various conservative hypocrisies, but that's another one. Um, mm. So the, yeah, that's what's, what's happening is going to be, I, I think li- likely you're going to see more aggressive enforcement of rules that were already there that the Obama administration chose to ignore. And that again, like a lot of leftists who probably would have gotten out and, and signed some petitions and demonstrated uh, in support of kind of went, well, you know, things are trending our way. Our people are in charge. Hillary Clinton's going to beat this clown. We don't have to worry about it. And so now you have to worry about it. I'll ask you to do just a little bit of crystal ball gazing. Do you think that that is tenable going forward, considering how much money Colorado is taking in um, from taxes on marijuana sales and how successful it's been and how it's lowering the uh, crime rate and how much... Um, how much money is involved with this thing? It seems like in America, if nothing else, if you can't rely on justice, you can rely on money having the final say. And there is so much potential revenue for the government and also for big business to get in on this in a regulated market that do you think Jeff Sessions' um, direction with becoming increasingly conservative rather than increasingly liberal, which seems to be the direction of the whole country that America is going in at the moment, do you think that's tenable or do you think that's going to hit a wall at some stage? It's going to hit a wall. I don't know if it's going to hit a wall in the Trump administration. Um, one of the one of the fun effects of, of decriminalization has been seeing all these successful, normal white people who do drugs and they're out in public. Yeah, and it, it is. It is. It is. I, there are so many people I grew up with in California who I never would have suspected smoked weed. I would have said, yeah, they did it in college, but then. You know, they grew up and they became adults. They they have Chardonnay. They have too much Chardonnay sometimes. But, you know, now it's like, oh, actually, pretty much everybody I know will be happy doing a J now and again, you know. But um, isn't that the so fucked th- up thing? Because there's a really sinister um, sort of side of that same coin. And I'm not sure I'm going to articulate this completely correctly. So bear with me. But that thing of when we see nice suburban white couples smoking weed, it's like, oh, it's not such a big deal. And yet there are all of this uh, completely fucked over by the system, largely African-American young males who are in jail for smoking weed. And the crime is just smoking weed. This thing that is, you know, for my mind, unsensibly and arbitrarily illegal. And it's just fucked over so many people. And then a couple of states start to experiment. It's like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe we shouldn't have fucked up tens of thousands of lives and destroyed families in the process. So it's like there is of course like a nice lovely kind of farcical nature to the whole silliness of the law but it is always important to remember as well that this affects real people look racism is a hell of a drug um and you can see that a whole bunch of places you look at all the all the republicans who wanted to talk on the campaign trail about the scourge of opioid opioid addiction you know the reason why that became a talking point is well now it hurts white people you have Mm. white people who who got on OxyContin yeah. uh, and, and uh, you know, or, or, you know, the, I can't remember if that's the drug that has the, you know, it's supposed to last for like 12 hours and in fact, in, in effect, it only lasts for about six. And, yeah, no, I'm pretty uh, sure that's so, right. And it's highly addictive. And I know yeah. this uh, partially because my girlfriend is a doctor. So I kind of, whenever these things come up in the news, I try to quiz her about it a little bit and find out about these substances. 
So you have white people who, who get on that, it's not enough, and they switch over to heroin and they die, or they get addicted and they lose everything. And now it's a tragedy. Whereas 20 years ago, if you showed them the wire, all these people would be rooting for Herc and Carver to get out of the, you know, the, the Econo van and bust some heads in the fucking concrete because the only people who become heroin addicts are black people. I mean, it, it, it's unfair, it's tacky, it's gross, it's morally offensive. Uh, but that's just the way things are going to be. And, and it, because it's America, uh, it, it, we're, we're working our way there, um, but we're not, probably not going to solve this when uh, you know, the actual like, first date of the Star Trek uni- fictional universe starts. We're probably not going to be at the racial melting pot point even by then. But uh, the, the nice thing about seeing all these nice, normal white people who hold six-figure positions at tech companies going and getting high is that it helped normalize it quite a bit more. And I, I think what will happen is when you do see these interdictions, if people get hurt, somebody gets shot, you know, when uh, during a SWAT raid or something, and it's just a guy who, who uh, you know, sold weed to a bunch of tech bros, you're going to start to see a lot more backlash mm. than you would have seen uh, if this had been done, uh, when this was done under yeah. Bush. And you're going to see it more than you would see under Obama because there's an opposition to oppose. Uh, and then the other thing, like, uh, you know, you, you brought up the money factor, Sessions isn't doing this because he's stupid. There's a lot of money to be made on the back end. So they're not making money on the front by taxing uh, the sale of marijuana, but they are making money by the people who support him are making money by running privatized prisons. And so when you crack down on marijuana, you got, you know, you're filling up those beds and and you're giving these people a revenue stream. So that self-interestedness works both ways this is just the maximally evil one and yeah it is it's just something so disgusting that that insipid evil one is the is the version of money winning out that comes out because there's kind of there's two directions you could take the money winning argument with regard to marijuana and the fact that it's jailing people who haven't done a lot wrong and destroying lives particularly of already very disadvantaged people which is probably why they're selling drugs in the first place is just like Fuck, man, man. Well, and and look, if you if you believe as I do that Jeff Sessions is as racist as he is, and if you believe as I do that is he seems to be, and if you believe as I do that Steve Bannon is as racist as he seems to be, there is an added bonus. If you you bust people enough times, they get a felony conviction. When they get a felony conviction, in a lot of states, that means they can't vote. Uh, and if they can't vote, and you're targeting a minority population, hey, you're making your life easier electorally. Uh, you know, if, if you have outright contempt for black people as subhuman or something, if that's your rationale, you know, th- this is just a bonus because in, in addition to locking them up, you know, you, you bleed their savings dry on, on attorneys and fees and, and, uh, and fines. You are, you are punishing and, and making sure that you have a permanent underclass. And if it, that underclass gets restive, then you've already established a, uh, um, a law and order program uh, and the veneration of police, the almost uncritical veneration of police to do whatever they want to them. Uh, and, and that's if your voters believe that that blacks are getting too vocal and, and Hispanics are getting too vocal and too much a part of this country and changing what this country is. And you're saying that we're locking them up and taking away their right to vote and we're breaking their backs uh, financially. That's a bonus to your voters. I mean, it, it, there really is like this entire proje- production chain of maximal evil behind it i mean i can't enjoy it but i can kind of respect how they leave no stone unturned when it comes to fucking poor non-white people 
and that's the thing that you've got to appreciate is that this is happening this isn't just the musings of some academics on the west coast and the universities and ivory towers and stuff like this institutional machinery to enshrine their own positions of power and fuck over everyone else who can challenge that um which predominantly is the uh principle that one person equals one vote if you can mess with that which they continually try to with things like voter id laws and um, disallowing people who have been to federal prison to vote and those sorts of mechanics it's so evil but it is real and it is really happening and i hope that um people can sustain the anger and the outrage that they have against this administration and start asking other questions about the wider network that this comes from and it's not like the democrats are completely exonerated of all guilt everywhere as well but You've got to say, it's a false equivalence to say that both parties are the same evil in different ways. Like, the Republican Party for the last 15 years, it seems, has been uniquely self-interested at the exclusion of interest in its own country and the principles which it's supposed to stand for. Would you agree with that as, as an American who's kind of paying attention to the situation? I think that's about the nicest way to phrase it, but yeah. <laughs> okay, well, look, we're going to wrap it up there because Jeb has to go to a film festival because he is part of the um, the hoity-toity, hoi-polloi upper class who uh, go to such things for free. Uh, I, I, so, Jeb? I, I, think it's, I think it's because my friend's wife uh, it, works in the ad department for the local paper and they get a lot of swag and she just wants to stay home with the kids. I think that's why I got this. <laughs> <laughs> That is, that is the most uh, soul-crushingly realistic view of what's happening rather than the glitz and glamour um, that I was trying to put forward for, for your evening plans. But I hope you enjoy it nonetheless, Jeb, and it was really great to talk to you, and um, yeah, gl- I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, I'm glad you, you made it back from uh, Japan safely. Uh, that's I, mean, I know there's a lot of terrible things going on over there. Um, there was the terrorist attack yesterday. There's the terrorist attack tomorrow. Um, just the, the whole... You know, just the way that they keep going after um, the Japanese there, the uh, the bad people. You got <laughs> it, Jim. Like, I had nowhere to go with that. I was you just got like... it. All right. Well, we'll talk to you guys soon. Um, please join the Facebook group. You can find us, Polydix, spelled the same way as the podcast. Um, hopefully, we've got our updated new album art now, which looks real cool. And uh, we'll start selling that on T-shirts and stuff at the merch store, which is at littleempirepodcast.com. And um, we are going to make a concerted effort to make this more regular um, so that it is coming out weekly if we can manage that or at the very least um, regularly, fortnightly. Uh, The main effort with that is to try and get a sponsor on board so that we can actually try and turn the the time and the energy we put into this uh, into a little bit of recompense so that we can pay for coffee and dinner to fuel us to get to another one. In Japan. In Japan every now and then. Japan was a very cheap (laughs) trip actually. I got the flights look, for like look, next if, to nothing. That was the only reason I if, went. If you didn't go to Japan, you wouldn't have the irregular podcast. If you didn't have the irregular podcast, you might have the sponsorship. If you had the sponsorship, then you could go to Japan. All right. Think give me money it, so man. I can go back to Japan. <laughs> At any rate, we'll catch you guys soon. Thanks again, Jeb. Thank you. When we celebrate our 250 years of glorious freedom, we will look back on tonight as when this new chapter of American greatness began. The time for small thinking is over. 
The time for trivial fights is behind us.